Hello and welcome to another episode of the Division 45 Psychological Study of Culture, Ethnicity, and Race Virtual Mentorship Program. Our names are Desa, yeah. Trent, and Crystal. The goal of the mentorship program is connecting students to seasoned professionals. Our hope is that you will gain knowledge about various mentorship topics and feel encouraged to develop more meaningful relationships. We're excited to bring you another year of mentorship from our division. Now we can start with um, brief self-introductions. Okay, which uh, do you want to start first? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, Martin. That's fine. Okay. All right, um, I'm Mark Noguchi. I'm currently a senior behavioral scientist with the RAND Corporation. I, uh, I started out my career as, uh, with a postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins in, in drug policy. I'm, uh, I then um, became an uh, assistant professor in psychiatry at uh, the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. So that was my first position, it's a research position. Um, from there, uh, we went to Hahnemann University, moved our group over the, the river, and then I was recruited by the RAND Corporation to run their uh, Drug Policy Research Center. Um, from there, I got recruited to be Chair of Community Health Sciences at UCLA. So um, that's my current position. Wow, that's a lot to follow. <laughs> um, I am Deborah Fisher, and I am, um, I consider myself a health psychologist, although truthfully, that's not the way I trained. Um, when I was getting my degree at Harvard, I trained in experimental psychology as a psycholinguist. So I'm quite a bit away from that now, but um, I definitely have drawn on, on those experimental um, training skills throughout my life and throughout my career as a psychologist. I currently am a professor at Montclair State University, which is in Montclair, New Jersey. And for those of you who don't know the West Coast that well, I mean the East Coast that well, it is about 15 miles south of New York City. Um, I have been at Montclair for about 16 years now. But I started my career, ironically, in London, England. Um, I was a higher scientific officer, I love those titles, um, for the Economic and Social Research Council in London, England, which is something like our National Institutes of Health kinds of um, foundation or um, institutions. Um, and uh, when I returned back to the United States after a couple of years working there, I uh, had a number of different positions, including the HIV AIDS Center at Columbia University. Um, I worked also in the Department of Emergency Medicine at uh, uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, um, doing research on um, health disparities. Um, and then eventually did do uh, landed at, at Montclair. I, I had a few other things that happened in between. I'll look forward to telling you more about that as we as we talk about our experiences and um, 
thoughts about what might be interesting ideas for students as they're beginning to approach the job market. Yeah, thank you both. And it sounds like Deborah and Martin, you both have had quite a journey of um, being the job market, of going through different positions and even across different settings. So I'm just curious, like, uh, how was it like for you when you first entered the job market? If you could recall, recall what that was like. Well, for me, it was odd because said my first job was in London, England. I um, moved to London. My husband, at the time, we were newlyweds, and he was working for a bank, for a multinational corporation, and he got a position in London, so we were living as expats, expatriates. Um, so uh, I didn't have a chance to start my job search in the States before we moved. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a little bit difficult, I must say, because there is a bit of a difference in how um, England and the U.S. looked at researchers in the field of psychology. I was warned that, you know, American psychologists had a little trouble finding jobs in the academic job market. Um, but at the time that I applied, the thing that most piqued my curiosity was the Economic and Social Research Council. And that was a good fit for me because I was able to use the skills and the knowledge that I acquired to uh, sit in evaluate proposals for funding, which was quite interesting. I must also admit that it was fun because I got put on the A-list for a lot of parties because I was a funder, um, but it was um, a different experience than some of the students might have because it was trying to find a job in a different country in a slightly different cultural setting than what I would have expected in the United States. Yeah, I would say that, uh, um, first of all, I, I was in graduate school for, for nine years. And so um, during, that, during that period, I was in, uh, in the experimental study program at BU. And uh, one of the things that I took advantage of is I took every course that um, was available in the psychology department since I was there for so long. Um, that included all the clinical courses. Um, so I actually had a really strong and diverse background in terms of uh, skill sets. And uh, then when I went and did my postdoctoral fellowship at, at uh, Hopkins, I, uh, I realized also that, um, that the amount of rigor and hard work that was required to be a researcher in the U.S. was really remarkable. And I think it um, having... Um, uh, placing myself where um, the environment was very competitive and where um, those who could show me um, and mentor me how to do um, research the right way was really a critical step for me. Um, it, it oriented me to uh, not just how to write grants, but um, how to, how to uh, set up uh, personal networks that would help me to get to know key players, um, um, help people who uh, are uh, going to make judgments about my grants to, to know who I am and um, to interface with them. So I would say one of the first steps that I took was to make a list of 50 individuals that I wanted to meet during my postdoctoral fellowship, um, who I thought uh, were influential in the field. And um, I, it took me until about a year after my postdoc to finish uh, meeting all the people on my list. But it wasn't just a matter of going out and meeting each of these individuals. 
it was a matter of really understanding what their work was, having questions for them, being very clear that I, ha I knew their work. Um, I had, uh, I thought, um, interesting questions to ask. And it ended up that I, I became friends with, I would say, most of them. Um, and, uh, and to this day, in fact, many of the visits that I made, people still think that it was a job interview and that I had turned them down. So I, 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 I actually think that it served me um, in a number of ways. The very last person that I, I um, had on my list to meet um, was a, a person at UCSF named Sharon Hall, who was uh, uh, running their... Um, their center grant at the time. And I said to Sharon, um, you know, you're the last person on my list that I had, had I had developed in, in uh, during my postdoc that I wanted to meet. And, um, and I said, you're the last person on my list. And I'm finally uh, crossing off uh, of you as the last person on the list. And she said, Martin, we met two years ago during your postdoc, the first two weeks of your postdoc. And so <laughs> I, 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 um, I had to laugh. I said, well, that, I didn't, I don't remember you because I wasn't prepared to meet you. And I think that that's the really important thing is, is, is the preparations because not only um, did I remember uh, the people that I met with, but I think they remembered me. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you certainly bring very interesting experiences as you both enter the job market. And, and I think you both already spoke to some of it, but I wonder like, when do you think, will be a meaningful time for us students, undergrad, graduate students, think about like entering the job market? Or what, what, what kind of thoughts do you think will should be, what kind of considerations do you think will benefit us to consider in various stages of our training? You know, I think Martin um, spoke to it somewhat in terms of making the list of people he needed to meet. <laughs> In my way of looking at that, also my way of looking at um, my experiences and in my um, time in grad school, you start almost the day you walk in the door. Um, it's never, it's not too early. I mean, you, you don't start um, necessarily with a panic, but you start with the expectation that you're going to be working and meeting colleagues. And you want to know as much as you can about who these people are and where they work and what they do and what they enjoy and where there are some commonalities because you're building that network of colleagues that you may call on at some point in time or they may call on you. So um, you start first, you know, very small in your own network, in your own community, getting to know the people that you're in the programs with, um, but then you blossom out. And, and this is where I would have to stress that, you know, opportunities to go to conferences and other venues where colleagues gather is really very important. Um, and I may be saying something that's a little out of school, but as important as it is to sit in those sessions and learn from the research that's being presented, it's probably more important to be in the hallways networking with people, attending the meetings that are not so structured or events that are not so structured to get to know people. Um, I also would say that I benefited largely from both advisors and uh, graduate students who I worked with who took it upon themselves to introduce me to people and then continuing and furthering those contacts and those networks because again, you never know, you know, later on down the line where those contacts could lead as well. So my admonition is start day one. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Um, but I would also say that uh, what was really helpful too was uh, my peer mentors. I I, I always felt that uh, in most of the settings that I've been in, um, there were a lot of people there, um, both in graduate school, my postdocs, all of my jobs. There were people. There were always people there that were a lot smarter than I was, and so I I felt like um, uh, forming. Uh, um, relationships um, and um, and really finding a support system to um, provide me with both confidence but also a sense of how to navigate um, you know learning from my peers uh, what they were doing how they were making connections what kinds of, um, of uh, relationships they had formed in, uh, locally um, so particularly at BU we had Harvard nearby we had a number of I mean I was able to, to actually go and and, uh, and hear talks from um, major experimental psychologists, uh, uh, leaders in the field, and, to, um, and, and those kinds of connections were actually made through my peers who, who had already um, made those connections and would invite me to, to accompany them. So I think it's, it's really about forming these social networks and social relationships that, that um, keep you focused and um, not necessarily on on where you think you're going, but being open to possibilities across a range of different uh, disciplines and, and environments. And if I could just, I, I'd like to agree with Martin about that because I think um, one of the lessons that I've learned, particularly because I switched fields of study, but one of the lessons that I've learned is keeping an open um, mind, being because you really don't know at such a young age, whether what you're studying and what you're devoting your time to at that moment is what really will interest or entice you 10, 15 years later. Um, at, when I was at graduate school at Harvard, I actually had the most fun, this is, I probably shouldn't say this, but I had the most fun uh, at the acoustic labs at MIT. Wonderful professor there, Victor Zhu, who um, really sponsored me and helped me to learn that field. And, and had I been able to continue doing that work, I think it would have been fun and exciting. Uh, but I'm nowhere near that now. And the change has come about almost serendipity in a serendipity manner. So I think being open to um, experiences, exposures, people, because you're um, in one area now, but it may not be the area you stay in later on. And, and having a wealth of experiences um, to draw on might help you when you decide, if you decide to make a change. Right. Yeah, and thank you for both for kind of highlighting the importance of us like taking all the advantages or opportunities we had in graduate school to learn as much as we can and, and then developing that network of colleagues early on using like support from your advisor, peers, and also talking about being open and flexible. And those are all wonderful tips to help us to prepare for entering a job market or just grow in general. Um, so I wonder like, what are some of the common or unexpected challenges you faced or you see students face nowadays um, as they consider like job market? Well, I think one of the real challenges for people that are considering academic positions is the shrinking academic job market. Um, it, it hasn't really shrunk that much in terms of actual numbers, I think, of professors. Uh, although it has, some of the statistics I've seen indicate that 
positions for uh, tenured professors have decreased. Um, but we have on in the field now um, quite a number of people who are adjuncts um, looking for positions, you know, fully qualified PhD uh, with good research who cannot find positions. And um, that that's a challenge. Um, so that is something that I think everyone needs to uh, be aware of, not to be scared of, but to be aware of. I think the other thing which I'm learning uh, more and more about is how different colleges and universities, if you're looking for an academic position, um, are moving away from the tenure track, tenure positions to contractual uh, arrangements. Um, Montclair has what's called instructional uh, specialists, but others have professors of practice. They can go by various different names. Essentially what it means is um, that a person is hired for a contractual period, period three to five years, which is renewable, but it's renewed based on the amount of work that a person has put up and the evaluation of that university. So while it is possible to get a job and have a contract that gives some job security, um, it is not the same as a striving for or achieving tenure. Um, there are drawbacks and benefits to both sides, but I think students just need to be aware that the market is changing. And so what they may have thought was the way the market operated before, you go, to, you apply, you get a tenure track position, and in six or seven years, you're awarded tenure, that system is changing. Not to say not to do it, just be aware of the change. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I'd, I'd say that uh, the level of competition has uh, increased pretty dramatically. Um, I, I, I've seen it um, at every level and at, um, in every work environment that I've, that I've been in. But I would say that, that um, uh, a more difficult aspect of this is that it's become, uh, academia has become much more corporate and, um, and much more packaged. And so the, the personal touch, I'd say, is, is missing in, in so many ways that, that, it's being, um, that the schools are being run as businesses uh, uh, much more than they are uh, as academic environments. And that many of the policies that you see are, are really intended to decrease liability more than they are to um, promote uh, academic excellence or to promote um, finances over academia. And so um, those, those prioritizations, I would say, actually, in, in many ways, um, have, a perverse, uh, have a perverse effect um, in that, and I, and I think you see them playing out with the, the latest uh, admission scandals, with, with um, the, the, the number of, of um, essentially um, breakdowns in, um, in what would have been um, violations of academic integrity uh, um, in the past um, are, are now um, sort of excused as, as issues of, well, we're, we, we need the money. Um, so, so the focus on doing things for the public good is, is lessened, I think, and more for the, the institutional good. So, so um, I, I mean, I, I, maybe this is just the, um, the uh, uh, musings of someone who's older and, and uh, thought it was better in the old days, but, but I really do um, 
I really am concerned about the the emphasis on on um, on finance over over academia. Yeah, it's a quite a saddening trend, and I'm curious mm -hmm. how how do you navigate all these changes that's happening in the job market and. If you have any tips on students, especially those who are considering and listening, considering entering academia at this time, um, what are some things they could be consider or try as they they start like exploring the job market? Well, I think I think that the issue comes down to again um, uh, when you enter into any work environment is to get a good sense of how people feel they're being treated and really spending time with the individuals that you hope to be working with um, to get a sense of, of um, you know, how, how much of a role they have in, in the institutional governance, mm -hmm. um, which I think um, actually uh, goes a long way towards uh, mitigating a lot of these kinds of influences. Um, uh, I was aware of one hire in the UC system that I, uh, um, at, at a very high level, where I thought the person wouldn't last because UCLA, or not UCLA, but the UC system has such a good um, faculty governance system. And uh, in, in fact, um, the person that was hired ended up getting fired within two years because of the pushback from faculty. So that there are, there are places um, and there are um, institutional means for sort of um, fighting for integrity and fighting for faculty rights and and there I think um, you want to look for environments where um, you have those kinds of systems in place um, but also um, just getting a good sense of how people are experiencing the work environment I think that's that's really critical I would agree with you Martin I think uh, getting a sense of the environment is is really important but also understanding what the institution values mm -hmm. Their academic institutions are very, very different. Some really put an emphasis on um, the student and teaching. Others put an emphasis on research, and they don't really focus that much on teaching. Um, some are very service-oriented, so it really depends on the institution, and, and it's, it would behoove the students to really try to do some real investigative work early on, first figure out what it is they want. Are they someone who really values teaching over research or is research the primary driver for them? And then to look for institutions that match or marry as close as possible. Um, but they differ greatly and um, how, whatever they stress, that's gonna be what you're held accountable to when you're evaluating for either renewal of contract or tenure. So if, it's, if they value something that is either not of interest to you or not uh, your strong suit, that could be a problem. And you'd rather know that first rather than later. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree strongly with the values part. Um, in fact, I, I would say that uh, um, certainly in, in leadership roles that I've had, one of the things that I found invaluable was going through value um, identification exercises mm. with the groups that I'm working with. Uh, you find early on that by really examining what's important to you and what you care about and what your priorities are, 
um, and lay them out in front of others, what ends up happening is you find common ground and you find the areas that you can build on. And mm -hmm. I think that's really um, been an important process. Um, one of the things that I found in, in um, looking for a, uh, a good working environment was looking at the mission statement of the institution and asking people um, how they felt um, the, uh, the institution was, was um, working towards or against that, that mission statement. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in particular, um, for example, when I was walking around Georgetown's campus and, and seeing all the uh, essentially Jesuit um, uh, signatures uh, of women and men for others, uh, of um, sort of uh, 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 working for the greater good, uh, for the magis, um, those kinds of things I I found to be um, really I found it wonderful that it, they were sort of pronounced so so loudly across the campus the, the things that they cared about um, and that the service orientation and the, and the focus on teaching excellence for me made it um, a really a wonderful environment for the faculty. Mm -hmm. it, it ended up not being the best for me because my boss and I didn't get along, but. But for the faculty, it was a fantastic environment and really a place that I, I love being around the students. I love being around the faculty. And um, it was because of the fact that everybody shared the same values and really cared passionately about teaching, cared passionately about, about um, being world citizens. And I think that that was uh, made for a really terrific work environment. Um, and the same thing with um, the RAND Corporation, uh, even though it's it, they do a lot of work that, um, as a kid, I found objectionable. I used to actually go and throw rocks at the building when I was a kid, um, yeah, because that was during the world, uh, during the Vietnam War, and I, I objected to all the, the what I saw the warmongering anyway from the, from the Rand Corporation. Um, but I joined them because I found that the researchers there really valued um, the fact that the work really is intended to be for the common good and um, and that uh, the works intended to be um, really placed out uh, um, for use by the world. Uh, so, um, the, you know, we're not really not allowed to take contracts, at least on the domestic side. On the military side, we have, you have your limitations. But on the domestic side, um, the work has to be made available for publication and for um, used by others. And so um, I, I really value that emphasis. Yeah, and thank you for both like really highlighting again about like the fit between the environment and the person who's trying mm -hmm. to enter the job market in terms of their values, what they look for in the work environment. And, and I think that speaks probably to some extent about work-life balance as well. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you can each speak to some in terms of how how does that play out in your decision? Was your job choices or even navigate in your current job? Well, there, I think I have a whole wealth of experience. <laughs> um, and and this will resonate with some and perhaps not as readily for others right now, but um, work-life balance was really important to me. I, I knew that I wanted to have a family and so it was going to be um, constantly evaluating what was in the best interest of my family versus what was in the, my interest in terms of developing my career. And um, I think one of the things I want to tell 
these uh, emerging professionals now is you don't always get it right. <laughs> it's not something that, you know, there's a formula for which you can just follow a, a path and everything will be fine. Um, when I started working, I was without children. And uh, as I said, I started in London. When we returned from London, I hit a couple of what I would call jobs, not really things that were um, of uh, building blocks for my career, or so I thought. Um, I did some work for Board of Cooperative Educational Services in New York City. Um, it was psychological testing. I, that wasn't my field, but I was responsible. I supervised testers and evaluators and translators, about 40 of them, uh, to do this work in school systems. Um, it wasn't something that I considered I would ever draw upon, but having that supervisory experience, having that managerial experience was something that served me well later on down, down the road. Um, when I started having a family, though, that's when I started making decisions about, okay, I can have this kind of a work schedule, which allows me flexibility, or I can work a nine to six or nine to seven kind of environment and, and not have much flexibility for my family. And I chose the flexibility. I did that thinking that I was going to pay a cost, that I would not be able to have the kind of uh, growth and development in my career, in my professional life, um, and, I, and I was wrong. And the thing I'd like to emphasize for people is, you know, you never know what you can get unless you ask for it. Mm -hmm. um, after um, Board of Cooperative Educational Services, I actually did get a teaching job. Um, I taught for Hunter College in the City University of New York for a couple of years. Um, and I thought that that was going to be a perfect work-life balance because it's an academic position. You know, you get the summers off, you get weekends, you get days off during the week, except that the, most of the teaching there was nighttime. And having a child already, um, I could not envision having her gone at school and missing her and her missing me for, during the day and not seeing her at nighttime yet. Yeah. Yeah was there but I wouldn't see her so it was a choice um, the work-life balance was out of balance in that kind of uh, that, that, that kind of setting and so I did the unthinkable I walked away from a tenure-track position and I told you will never get another tenure-track job offer ever if you walk away from that that was wrong and so you have to do what you know is right in your family and the fact what some may counsel you as being the wrong choice or not a visible choice. Um, I had a couple of different positions after that, but um, one of the ones I mentioned already was uh, working in the emergency medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine School of Medicine in uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I negotiated a part-time schedule. They wanted a full-time researcher. I negotiated a part-time schedule. So I was there every day, but I was there from nine to two with the understanding that if there was some work that really needed to get done, I, I'd take it home. But home was important. I needed to be home for my family. Um, so I guess the thing I'd like to stress more than anything is um, there is flexibility, especially now in the workforce where there is expectation that you know, people don't necessarily want to conform to the work schedule that has been what we came to believe uh, for decades, um, you have to ask, you have to explore, you have to pursue. But above all, I think it's important for the 
students that are coming out now to ask themselves, what are my priorities? How do I align with a job that I'm interested in taking? Can I postpone this part of my life for X number of years to pursue this career? And if I do, what are the consequences? These are personal decisions. Not everyone is going to come to the same place with regards to what they value or what they think they can defer. But if you know a little bit about yourself, if you understand and be honest with yourself about what is important for you, um, then that'll help you make the choices career-wise that will not only be satisfying, but you won't feel a conflict between when you're at work and when you're at home and where you think you should be somewhere else. Yeah, work-life balance is uh, something I, I have to admit I, I probably didn't have at all at the beginning of my career. Um, at the same time, I would say that I loved what I was doing. And so in terms of my own mental health, I would say that um, because I was working nonstop at, a job, at uh, jobs that I really enjoyed doing and I was really passionate about, um, and where the focus really was on helping others and um, and uh, uh, in, in my own way, making a difference in the world. I, I felt that it was worth the trade-off. Now, at the same time, um, I would say that my wife didn't always agree that it was <laughs> worth the extra efforts. It, it put um, much more burden on the female half of our partnership. And, uh, and, and that I, I, I definitely recognized that, that in many ways there was a sort of a male privilege there in, in a sense that I had um, that, that, uh, that support system in place. Um, and, and my wife um, sacrificed for me where, where each time we moved to a new position, she had to start her dance career over again. And uh, fortunately, she, she was outstanding and always got jobs, um, um, which, uh, uh, for example, when we moved to Philadelphia, she actually was hired by the University of the Arts to teach sight on scene, um, just on reputation. So I, I felt that it was, um, it was uh, good that she was um, highly competent and was able to get a faculty job immediately. Um, just, um, but partly because she also had a tremendously rich social network and so um, she had a lot of people willing to vouch for her saying that she was a wonderful teacher. Um, I would also say though that um, that, that was um, part of the key to being able to work so hard was um, doing the kind of work that fit um, my sort of personal value system and what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I've actually had the opportunity to work in the private sector in, in jobs. Um, uh, for example, I, I, when I was in college, I was offered two 7-Eleven stores for free um, where I would, um, I would own them. And the, the franchises at the time were worth about 100000 a apiece. Um, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to graduate school. So I, I turned that down. And in graduate school, I was actually offered the position of vice president of a produce company that, um, that my family had been involved with. And, um, and the starting pay was $200,000 a year back in the 80s, which is um, a considerable amount, um, with the promise of about a million dollars a year after that. Um, but the, the, the fact is that I wanted to focus on on helping others and being a psychologist. I, I know it sounds crazy, but the, uh, those of us who I think are in this profession 
do it because um, our intent is to be there for others. And I, and I think that, that was, that's always been my emphasis. It's carried me through my entire career. And even today, as I think about, you know, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? It, 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 it remains the same. I like what I do. I love what I do. It's exactly the right career path for me. And um, I want to continue it. So, um, you know, in the early days, my work was uh, out in the fields and in, um, in Newark, Jersey City, Camden, New Jersey, um, walking the streets, uh, working with drug users, um, and getting people into treatment for HIV and drug use. And um, I think that, um, you know, we made a big difference. Uh, so, uh, yes, I lacked um, work-life balance early on, um, but I would say that it, it was uh, um, a pursuit of passion. So, in many ways, I... I I think I probably would have done done it anyway. <laughs> I would have done something else anyway, uh, very similar, uh, because it was something that I felt was really important and wanted to do. I think you both spoke to like how personal these decisions can be, because it's unique to everyone's position in terms of where they are in life, what values they have, what's more important, like the trade-offs Martin you spoke about. Um, and also, I really like Deborah how you talk about like you like sometimes we have those thoughts about if I give up on this job that I will never get another job like this. When you said that I will never get a tenure track position again, if I give that up. And I think that's important for a lot of our listeners to know that sometimes um, we make sacrifices based on potentially incorrect thoughts um, mm -hmm. that may deter us from like pursuing a better work life, um, work life balance in that sense. And also like Deborah earlier, you mentioned about like, you never know what you're going to get unless you, you ask for it. And then you talk about you ask for more flexible work schedules. So I wonder, like, for those of us who are looking for jobs, what are some of the things you think we should ask or should attempt asking since there's potential benefits for that? Oh, I, I really do have to jump in here because this is such an issue um, for for my family. My I have two daughters. We have two daughters. And uh, my husband was always very keen to to encourage them to bargain to negotiate because for women particularly we don't bargain and negotiate nearly as much as we should and and i'm not saying that all men do but there is a gender difference in terms of bargaining and negotiating and so what i would really encourage all um emerging professionals to do but certainly women is you know don't don't assume that first offer is where you should stop. It's where you start. And if they're offering, if you're being offered a job, um, you know, reassess. Ask yourself, you know, what is it that I want or that I need? Either in terms of salary or in terms of work schedule or uh, class schedule or responsibilities that are spelled out in that job description. If it's not in an academic setting, you need to ask um, what is it that I most care about and argue for that, ask for it. I mean, the way I like to think of it is you already have the no, what you're gambling for is the yes. You have the job. You don't quite have those specific things that you would like to have. You're trying to see if you can get them. If you have the job offer on the table, it's not going to go away because you asked for a few more dollars or that you asked for a different kind of schedule or a different configuration or a different job responsibility. So um, you need to um, practice negotiating, and, and it can be very, very scary at first, 
um, because it, it, you feel a little bit intimidated or like a little worried about what they're going to respond. But the only thing they can say is, you know, no, the offer that we give you stands as is. And then it's up to you to decide what you want to do. But negotiation is part of the whole job application process. No employer, I believe, expects anyone to take the first offer that's offered. They expect that they're going to have a little back and forth. And so I would really encourage you to get, to get ready and to do that. I would agree with that strongly. And I would say that it's not just about salary, that in, um, in particular, if you're, a, if you're a minority researcher, um, to be um, very upfront about concerns regarding um, being placed in the role of being the minority person on the, on the, in the department or, or um, to be designated um, as uh, a person that uh, uh, has to be on the, all of the different committees uh, or to just, I, I guess not to be voicing this necessarily, but to be aware that in many departments, if you're one of the few minority um, uh, faculty, that, um, that you end up being on more committees than other people just because they always need a minority member. And so mm -hmm. just to be um, clear about what your um, service requirements will be um, and that you'll be held to, um, that you're required to do, um, uh, what your um, mentoring role will be because of very frequently um, minority um, scholars find themselves overwhelmed uh, at, um, by, um, by uh, the minority students who, who, who um, want to go to a mentor who they identify with. And so um, there are extra pressures, I think, especially early on in the career when you're trying to establish your teaching loads and you're trying to get your research started um, to also have um, what are not requirements necessarily, but, but end up being sort of personal obligations because you, you feel badly about turning people away or saying no to anybody. Um, so I think it's really important to um, establish early on and get a feel for early on um, what's absolutely required um, and then for yourself what you think you're capable of doing um, within, within the, uh, an environment that's going to be putting those pressures on you naturally. So I think that that's, it's, it's a little bit trickier aspect to navigate, but it's a good thing to be aware of. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue because I was wondering if you have any specific tips for students who identify as racial ethnic minority or uh, minority identity of any other kind. Like, um, like I don't know, Martin, you already spoke to some of this. So like anything else that for students that we can consider or prepare ourselves as we go through this process? Well, it, you know, it's fascinating, but um, for... In some fields, um, maybe, and actually I would say psychology is probably guilty of this as much as any, um, that our, our guild mentality and training um, often means that um, we pigeonhole ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. uh, many many uh, of the uh, African-American and Hispanic students who are working closely with an African-American or Hispanic uh, mentor um, often actually are in areas that are, um, that are uh, very oriented to, um, let's say, health disparities or to um, um, qualitative approaches, um, those, those kinds of areas. And um, 
I've had discussions actually with a lot of, of leaders of different associations like the American Sociological Association. Um, I've seen this at the American Psychological Association that this, men, this, this um, emphasis on um, learning by, um, by, uh, by mentor approach um, often silos um, uh, minority scholars into areas that are, um, are seen as for minorities. Mm -hmm. and um, or more minority oriented and so it's really important i think um to to at least recognize that that places some constraints on your job market possibilities uh, or the how you might be perceived and so it's important to to break those stereotypes i think and to and to be um, willing to venture beyond um the apprentice model to make certain you have a lot of, of training experiences that um, perhaps are more quantitative if you're qualitatively oriented mm -hmm. that are um, that are in some ways um, you know um, be aware that if you have um, an interest in areas that are a little bit more mainstream and a little bit better funded that that, that does um, that does help your career a bit uh, because uh, because you don't want to be pursuing the same dollars as as uh, as many of your peers. Um, I actually had this conversation once with, the, with one of the former directors of, of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, where I, I was saying that um, uh, trying to get grants funded to look at Asian Pacific Islander issues was um, a really difficult task because um, the question always came up. Uh, uh, are there enough Asians in America to care about this? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't exactly stated that way, but that was the implicit message that, um, that this, this doesn't generalize adequately, or, or um, are you going to be able to recruit enough individuals to participate, or, or this is the model minority, why would you want to be, you know, looking at this group? Um, and, um, and the fact is that because nobody was looking, there were no numbers. And so you couldn't, you know, you, you actually didn't even have a baseline where you could draw from the literature because there was no literature. So I, I made the point to the director and I said, look, I, I, I've had a ton of money from, from NIDA, um, but I can't get a single grant funded to look at Asian Pacific Islander issues. And he acknowledged that that obviously um, indicated a problem because you know, he's, um, I had a, a really strong track record, but uh, when it came to looking at issues that I personally wanted to look more at, um, there just wasn't any funding for it. So I think it's important to understand um, that sometimes um, we have to we have to personally break out of our of our um, uh, molds and and out of what um, in some ways the silos that we're pushed into and and break out of that. No, I I agree wholeheartedly, Martin, and I I think of it um, of the limitations that I see for. Um, students with training in, in terms of um, what they look at in terms of role models and what those role models not purposely but inadvertently sort of share um, if you if you're particularly tied or aligned with a professor who you like um, and that field becomes something that you then like and then you follow in those footsteps and and that's great except when uh, students who feel like they really want to have a a minority mentor and that minority mentor is in some of the fields that you've decided that you've explained before being somewhat limited in terms of um of the the scope that they may that they may um include so they're more qualitative kind of studies or maybe even more on the clinical side um, and so then we see a disproportionate number of minority students gravitating to to those fields um, 
And, and that I think is unfortunate for two reasons. A, um, I think that that underplays a talent that a lot of minority students have. It also uh, perhaps gets them to question whether they have the talent or skills to pursue um, those other areas or those other careers. Um, and I think that it then um, deprives the larger society of people who have something to offer in those fields, in those areas. So I, I would really uh, encourage students to, to do really like you did uh, in your graduate career and take a plethora of courses, a variety of courses on a number of different areas to sample, to find out where their real interest lies and to then to pursue that, um, finding as supportive a mentor as possible and, and going forward. I think once, um, for some of the students who may be in fact uh, teaching assistants uh, in do or doing teaching assistantships in their graduate career, I think it's also important for them to realize that those undergraduate students, particularly if, if the teaching assistant is a minority and the undergraduate students are a minority, they're looking at you, the teaching assistant, as someone to look up to. You become a model for them. And it is as important to model for them excellence and um, openness to new ideas and experience um, as it is for the faculty mentor to model, to, to model that for the teaching assistant as well. Um, it's important that we continue this stream of uh, of examples and leading by examples um, so that the subsequent generations can follow in a like footstep. Um, lastly, I'd like to say, I, I think I really did benefit from um, having people who were um, African-American, who were in experimental psychology while at Harvard. But one of the things I noted was there was only one. <laughs> there was only one. Um, there were... Um, and, the, and most of the other African-Americans who went through the program uh, were in other uh, more qualitative or clinical fields. So that, that issue pertains and it becomes a, a problem going forward. I would like to add also that um, I think the issue pertains also in clinical work. Um, I have a number of colleagues who talk about the difficulties they sometimes have when um, meeting new patients who see them for the first time and boy that wasn't the face they expected to see and how they have to work to overcome those uh, difficulties uh, in order to to be the kind of professional they know they can be and to help the people seek their help. Yeah and I think you both talk about there's challenges certainly as um, minority students in the field of psychology still but then there's also have been some positive trends and a lot of it is also why we're doing the mentorship program here. So students who are considering entering job market can see that you, Martin and Deborah, you've go gone through this process and still in the process of trying to make these positive changes for the other people and for the field of psychology and for students to know, even though it was difficult, that it's doable and we can be part of this force of um, pursuing our own values, dreams, passion, but also making a change to the field. Um, so I guess we want to switch here a little bit and wonder like if you can talk about your experiences working in different settings because I know you both are really passionate about doing research but you've worked in like different like hospitals or departments, academic settings. Like what do you see are the differences across different settings as a research 
psychologist or doing some applied work as well? Um, there are a lot of differences, <laughs> I have to say quite honestly. I, when I think back at the different places that I've done research at, um, it was Columbia's HIV Center where we worked with HIV and AIDS prevention among adolescents. Um, it was a domestic violence shelter where we did research on um, domestic women who had been exposed to domestic violence earlier in their, in their years in their own as children um, and what that meant for them in terms of substance use and suicide ideology. Um, we did research at, at uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine looking at access to health care um, and continued that work um, to, into the, the um, position that I have now at Montclair State University. Um, and all three, all four of those places really had a very different feel in terms of the, um, the value that was placed on the research and how easy or difficult it was for me to get that research done. Um, when I did research at, at Columbia HIV, that probably was the closest thing to just a, a research think tank. We had all of our time, all of our day was just dedicated to designing the research study, to getting it funded, to, to, to conducting the research, to analyzing the data, to presenting it. It was the classic research environment, and that was fun, and I enjoyed it. It had a field element to it because we were actually in the field um, implementing the um, intervention programs. There was an eight-week intervention course to teach adolescents safer sexual health practices. So that was fun, and, and I really, really enjoyed that, and I enjoyed working with that interdisciplinary team. Um, when I went to the domestic violence shelter to work in doing research, um, that was very different. It was a very small shop. People really didn't have that great of a handle on research, let alone research practices, let alone getting anything approved by the IRB. So in my position as director of the evaluation unit, I was leading all of that and taking all the skills that I had learned before at the HIV center and had put into practice and actually implementing and, and directing that research. Um, at Mont, out, uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, very different field there. They had a well-oiled engine for research. That was their bread and butter. That's what they did. They had a very full IRB team. They had um, uh, a very full development office that would help you and, and the finance office that would help you put together those parts of the research grant that, you know, were kind of foreign to you. Um, that was their specialty. That's what they did. So all they really wanted us to do was to put together the ideas, the thoughts, the plan for research and sketch out a timeline and they could finish filling in all the rest of the details. Uh, so we had a lot of assistance and a lot of help. And, and not surprisingly, uh, I worked there for a little over two years and the second year I was there, we pumped out nine grants. Uh, and that's something that's doable when you have that kind of a support team to back you up. Uh, by comparison, Montclair is still developing a lot of its infrastructure to help with the development of grants. And so uh, getting grants um, written and um, through that process at Montclair is a little bit slower because that, that infrastructure doesn't exist and consequently it slows down the process of getting grants out the door. So depending upon where you work, how well 
structured and how um, well developed those systems are, you can either be very productive and pump out lots of grants, or you can struggle as you try to get things together um, that take a lot more time and effort. I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I started my career in, in settings that were um, research first, and um, uh, but where um, I think the experience at Hopkins allowed me to actually um, uh, understand what it took to be successful in the grant game um, and um, how to put uh, strong teams together. And so wherever I've gone, I've sort of built on the, the model that um, that I uh, learned from, from, I think, being in a place where people were professional grant getters and grant writers and really understood um, how to create those sort of machines um, so I've tried to replicate that every place that I've been and and in, in, uh, I would say that uh, I've been really successful at that um, but having had that that um, that model and the willingness to, to um, just continually write and and write almost non-stop um, is as much as uh, as important in fact I even gave up doing the analyses myself which was something that I could obsess on and, and enjoy for hours and hours on end as crazy as that sounds um, I had to give up the analytic part because I spent too much time doing that and I found that I needed to have that time for writing um, because writing for a researcher is the currency uh, it's the currency for for promotion it's the currency for getting grants it's the it's the essential element um, so I really had to learn how to spend time and um, and budget time for for writing and getting the written products done. Um, and I think increasingly in today's work environment, it's the writing skills and writing clearly and writing well, but more than anything else, writing often, that becomes um, you know the, the the currency of the of the realm and and what has brought me, I would say, many of the of the rewards that I've had in my career. Um, but I would also say because I was really successful early on that I was able to give credit to others for the writing products and to turn over um, uh, leadership on many projects to, to my colleagues. Um, and as much as possible, I found that, um, that by sharing um, credit and by sharing leadership and by um, involving others in that writing process, um, that what ended up happening is I built up a very strong um, uh, core of, of uh, colleagues who trusted me and who I trusted them and we worked well together. And having that team, I think, and the willingness to give credit um, liberally um, uh, meant that they were also willing to give me credit uh, much more liberally and, and, to, and to share in, in our mutual successes. So, um, uh, I, so I actually had, um, in fact, I would get yelled at occasionally by, by my boss who had a different approach, by one of my bosses who had a different approach, um, that I was giving away too many publications and giving away too much credit, and I, I disagreed. I said, no, it's, it's actually the, the, um, my sort of work philosophy that um, I, I didn't need to be first author in every paper. I didn't need to be... Um, you know, controlling every aspect of the research that it was important to share the wealth and to have everybody involved. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, one year we actually had all of the researchers, um, the funded researchers, um, agree to serve as research assistants for one of our research associates who, who was a master's level person. 
and we let him design a study and we went and did the interviews for him um, because we wanted to show that we wanted to help in the development of our junior colleagues. And every one of our PIs actually contributed to, to the paper, contributed to the interviews. And I think that that kind of an atmosphere created a real sense of team and, and I, thought, I think it increased our productivity. So, um, so I, I, I think in some ways it didn't matter where I was. I created the atmosphere I wanted and uh, that I thought we needed to be successful. Um, but as much as anything, it was a matter of, of trying to make certain as much as possible that it was um, a, a group effort and a shared effort. Could, could I add also, Martin, I think you raised some really important elements, and um, I think it speaks to what the students should look for themselves, too. Um, looking for um, a partnership or a mentorship when they get their first job or second job with someone like who you're portraying, someone who has a vision toward helping to mentor, to bring up through the ranks uh, their, uh, their mentee or the student or the newly hired person so that they learn the ropes and that they get some credit um, as they begin to establish their career is really, really important. And, and, and like what you're saying, I feel that sense of obligation myself, um, and I do do that work students in our publications but I think that um, what saddens me often is when I hear of students who are working in um, faculty labs and doing a lot of the work and I always ask them well are you going to get your name on the publication is that a publication where you will get authorship and and I frequently hear students say well the, that that professor doesn't work that way and, and I think that's wrong. I, I can't dictate to them what they should do, obviously. But I think that um, I could encourage people to find those mentors who will not only teach you the ropes and let you work with them, but also give you credit for the work that you do in the form of authorship. That's what we should be doing. Um, senior level um, um, uh, professionals should be doing that for our junior uh, professionals that come along, and, and they are there but you may have to look a little bit to find them. Yep, thank you. Um, do you have anything to add since we're approaching our time today to any of the conversation we had? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I would just say that um, one of the things that I would emphasize at all levels is, is learning how to talk in plain language and to communicate um, to the larger public what you're doing. No matter um, what your role, no matter what you're doing, um, it's important to, to learn how to communicate to um, children, to parents, to um, your students, um, that in, in as plain a language as possible um, and, um, and with as little jargon as possible, um, the importance of what you're doing. I would say, um, that in communicating science, move away from the emphasis on methods to an emphasis on the question uh, and talking about the importance of what you think you're looking at and the things that you found that were exciting. I, I, I think more than anything else, um, as teachers or as researchers, um, we have to communicate. And I know that as psychologists, we understand that, and yet um, we contribute to the problem. And so um, I would say that, that the most successful courses that I've taught were the ones that emphasize um, communicating science to the public um, as, as a final product. And I think that, um, and 
I think everybody comes to understand by doing how important that is. And that would be my final say. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I would add to that, the communication I think is hugely important. I think that's one of the skill sets that um, students who train in psychology can take away. It's a very valuable commodity in the workforce, whether you're going into academia or research or clinical or any other field. So I would encourage students to look carefully at the skills that they have developed as a result of their training. And, and in my estimation, what I see are the written communication skills which are home. I mean, if they're really working and practicing um, these communication skills, much like Martin said, for clarity of communication, that's a very, very valuable skill set. The other I would add would be um, quantitative and analytical skills. Um, that is something that we as psychology, uh, as psychologists, can uniquely contribute to the field. Um, one of the things that we can do that statisticians don't do, for example, is we're really practiced with um, analyzing information that comes in, making sense out of it, and then telling people what these data say in a way that helps them to understand something about human behavior or human thought, human processing. Um, that is a very unique skill set. And I would encourage people to really build and build and, and get those skills down Pat, so that they too can be applied, and they can be applied in fields other than psychology. Um, believe it or not, insurance underwriters love people who can do quantitative analytical skills uh, so that they can understand how much they want to charge people for their insurance. Uh, the banking industry, the food industry, the pharmaceuticals industry, the um, all kinds of industries value the quantitative skills that psychology um, has and imparts to its students. So those two skill sets, quantitative skills, data analysis, and, 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 and uh, interpretation, and uh, communication skills are really very strong skills to take out to any place in the marketplace. And I would encourage students to really build on those so that they could use those, whether they go into psychology or anywhere else. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Deborah and Martin, for spending an hour with us today talking about a topic entering the job market. And as a reminder to our student audience um, that they've both graciously offered three individual mentorship sessions virtually. So if you're interested in these opportunities, please reach out to our Division 45 student committee email and then we'll help arrange that to make that happen. Um, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.